Amen. Hey guys, grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2, would you? While you're turning there, um, quick announcement with regards to tomorrow night. Um, Tomorrow night, if you were able, if you bought tickets for the sneak preview, the premiere of um, The Son of God, that's tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. But we're asking that you guys plan on coming out at 6.30, please. And I know I have taught you well to procrastinate. I am fully aware of that. Um, But tomorrow night, I'm begging of you to come early. Um, What... The production company has not done a great job in navigating um, churches that want to do this. We're not the only church. We might be the only one here, at least the one, only one I'm aware of. But, but all over the nation, they've been doing this. And so the producers of the film assigned one person to be in charge of sneak preview requests for the entire nation. And that one person has been hammered with requests. And as a result, everything was behind. So, for example, the tickets that you guys got when you bought them, we made them because they never sent us anything to give out until yesterday. So, so there's this awkwardness where we've had to just go to Tinseltown and say, okay, here's what we did. We had to do something, so um, here's what you need to watch for. And we'll have the list with all your names, all of you who bought tickets. Um, but just plan on coming early just in case there's some confusion that we need to work through. Again, remember, um, we're representing Christ and representing the church while we're there. And um, if you bought tickets the first time we put them on sale, your ticket doesn't have a theater number on it because we didn't know what that was um, at that time. Your theater, is Kathy in here? Where's Kathy? What's that theater? Nine. So that's theater nine. They'll tell you that when you get there, we, we hope. But you're in the big theater. If you bought tickets the second time, it says on your ticket, theater 13. It's a little smaller than the original one that we have. So um, just keep that in mind tomorrow. And we're really looking forward to being able to fellowship with you guys and have communion together. And, and uh, just again, just like we're doing today, it's an opportunity. I encourage you guys, redeem the time tomorrow night. Don't just go to be entertained. Like go in prayer and say, Um, just in line with what we're doing here on Wednesday nights. What does Jesus do? I want to be a follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so even in this movie, as we go to on that night, how can I grow in my knowledge of him and in what he has for me in life and really make use of that time? Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter two. Um, I'll just read through it real quickly, what we're going to cover tonight and we'll pray and then we'll get going. Starting in verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, we bow before you here, Lord, as we, we, we stand before this particular text. And we just pray, God, that the posture of our hearts would be one of submission. That, God, your word would have its way in our lives. We pray that even as the wind is blowing outside, God, that your Holy Spirit would blow through this place. That you would awaken understanding. That you would teach us. That you would convict, comfort, whatever is necessary, Lord, that we might leave this place following you, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, as we often do, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are. We're starting Mark chapter 2 today. And remember, let's, let's once again lay out, as we probably will almost every time, what our purpose is in the book of Mark. Our, our goal here is not just to gain understanding, not just to take in information, but our goal in going through the book of Mark is so that we see what Jesus does. And as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that we will be, as we behold him, we are molded from glory to glory, one degree to another, into the image of his son. So we're going through the book of Mark intentionally to see what did Jesus do, to behold him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, that in him was the complete revelation of who God is. And so we watch as we read, as we study. There's so many things to learn, but our emphasis, the lens we're going to look through as we go through this all the time is always going to be, what do I learn about what it means to follow Jesus? And by, by in saying that, following Jesus, we mean we want to, from one degree to another, be more like Jesus. That's the goal. That can sound almost strange sometimes to say, I want to be like Jesus. That's not blasphemous. We're not saying I want to be Jesus. Big difference. Amen? What we're talking about, we want to be like him. Just like any child who looks up to his parents wants to be like dad. That's the goal as we're doing these things. And so as we read through these, I've encouraged you guys. I want to read, just give you a couple of these again, just um, so you can have them in the back of your mind as you move forward reading the rest of this chapter and into chapter three during the week. So as we read these texts, we're asking specific questions as we go through them. Um, we're asking questions like, what does this passage teach me about God? How does this passage point me to Jesus? Where's the gospel in this passage? How does this fit into the big picture? Some of you are writing this down and you're like, slow down, right? Too bad, you gotta keep, no. So first, what does this passage teach me about God? How does this passage point me to Jesus? Where is the gospel in this text? 
In keeping with our last study, uh, going through the, the biblical theology series we did, how does this fit into the big picture of redemptive history? And then finally, how does this passage help me to be more like Jesus? Those are the sorts of questions we're asking as we go through these texts. So the idea is discipleship. And so as we're going through this today, in this text in particular, we're really going to take time to notice two in particular, two things of, uh, of notoriety, really. We're going to camp out on two things. Um, two things that we're going to see in this text that in a lot of places, in a lot of circles, can be earmarked as symbols of spirituality that aren't necessarily portrayed that way when it comes to Scripture. So in this text, we're going to see that an enthusiastic crowd is not a sign of discipleship. And then we're going to see that depth of knowledge is not an indicator of discipleship. So let's just go through them. We start off in verse 1 as Jesus returns home to Capernaum. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. You guys remember we talked about Capernaum. It's, Capernaum's kind of like Jesus' home territory. We give Bethlehem a lot of the attention because, you know, that's where he was born. And we'll give Nazareth because that's where he was from. He's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. But a lot of his ministry headquarters, if you will, was in the area of Capernaum. Those of you that are coming to Israel with us in May, you're going to get to walk these very places. In fact, there's a dig or, or an uh, uh, archaeological site there that some people believe is Peter's home. Um, I haven't been able to find out yet if we get to go there or not. If they say no, we're sneaking there. You know what I mean? Like, because how do you not go see that? Because that's what they believe would be the case, that if that was Peter's home, that's where Jesus likely lived when he was there in that area. And so you're talking about the, the very home that Jesus was in. And if that's the case, that means the very home that this story is taking place in. Wouldn't you love to stand in the living room of the building in which the roof tore open? That would be amazing. So we'll sneak over there and see if they arrest us or not. If they do, someone who's staying behind, come get us. Our intentions, you know what I mean? Our intentions were good and we'll pay you back the bail. But, uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. So, so he's coming home to Capernaum, which would likely be Peter's home when he's there. And, and word has gotten out. Remember, he's been going through and he's been casting out demons and he's healed the sick and this huge following, like there's no small stir. In fact, we saw in our last study at one point, the entire city is outside of his house. There's a huge turnout that's there. So this huge crowd gathers here at the house and they're packed inside the house. They're packed in the windows. They're packed, it says specifically at the door. There was no room, not for anyone, not even at the door. People piled up. It's kind of like Brit when someone good comes. You know what I mean? You drive through Brit and they're like sitting on the outside, even just trying to listen in. I mean, that's just for comparison's sake. Maybe it's not perfect. Anyway, so, um, so there at the house, tons of people. There's no room for anything. Big crowd. And, and if you were a competing church, or if you were another person in town, you see that's going on, you'd be thinking, man, that, that place has got it going on. And that place, that's where the spiritual stuff must be going down. Look at them, all these people, they just can't even, they're climbing in the windows, they're climbing in the doors to get into that place. But the book of Mark has some really interesting and eye-opening things to say with regards to crowds as you go through the book of Mark. If you read through the book and you just take note of times when crowds come up, and really for that matter, if you go through any of the Gospels and you start to pay attention to what happens in crowds, you can see some really interesting things. Mark, for example, 
is going to refer to crowds that are flocked to Jesus some 40 times before chapter 10 alone. So we have a lot of samples from which to pull from to see what happens when crowds come around Jesus. And what you see is, you see that though crowds listen to his teaching and though Jesus views crowds as objects of his compassion, he'll see crowds and be moved to compassion as he watches them. There's one major important thing that you never see. You never see a crowd reacting in repentance and faith to Jesus and his teaching. It's not there. You don't see that. You see individuals you see people in different settings. But anytime we see all these crowds together, we never see that. In fact, most of the times, crowds are sort of presented as sort of a, um, they're sort of passive. They're just sort of there, almost like a setting for the story to take place. But never do you see that sort of response that the gospel demands happening in the context of a crowd. And, and there's, there's more. Crowds are presented as being really fickle in the gospels, like really fickle. Like they are all on board with this thing. And then just a few verses later, they hate that thing. Very exact same thing. For, so for example, in John six fifteen, in John six fifteen, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Crowds are growing. Crowds are growing. They hear what's going on. Word spreading of the miracles. And so they all come around and it says that they want to take Jesus by force. Remember, because they want to make him king. And so he withdraws from the crowd intentionally from that. And what's the purpose? What's the reason that it actually says that he did that? In John 2, verse 15, excuse me, John 6, verse 15. It says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain himself. So he draws away from the crowd. But as you read through the passage, the crowd keeps following him. The crowd keeps following him. And so then he's got a whole crowd together and he begins to teach later on in John chapter 6. And he does that famous teaching on, I am the bread of life. And it's this hard teaching about if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my disciples, then you're going to eat of my body and you're going to drink of my blood. And he starts teaching these hard things. In fact, the disciples say, these are hard things, Lord. I don't understand this. And up comes verse 66, which interestingly enough is John six sixty-six. But that's just, you know, coincidence or whatever. I don't know. But verse 66 says, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So you see, the crowds are following, and then Jesus intentionally starts teaching hard things, almost as if he's purposefully trying to thin the crowd down. And in John chapter 2, after the wedding of Cana, and he cleanses the temple, and again, his word of who he is is building, and his fame is growing. It says, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, all the crowds are wanting to follow him and they're wanting like, we're going to follow you. We're going to follow you. And yet Jesus intentionally does not commit himself to the crowd because he knows what they're after. He knows they're not there to be disciples. They're actually there to be ministered to. And, and not even so much on like a, I need Jesus minister to me, but more like I have a need. Will you fill my need? And when that happens, Jesus intentionally withdraws himself back. And so you start to see this kind of fickleness between the crowds. Like one minute they're following him, the next minute they're not following him. And you guys know, as you follow the story further on, you get towards the end of the gospels and there's a whole nother crowd chanting a whole nother thing. 
They're saying, crucify him, crucify. We will not have this man Lord over us. And so it's an interesting dynamic that happens with regards to crowds. Another thing that's really interesting in how Jesus manages crowds, it's in the context of teachings in front of crowds that Jesus hides his teachings from the crowds. That's when he starts using parables. And it says he intentionally starts teaching in parables, hiding truth from people that were there in the crowd that weren't really there to follow him. Those whose hearts really weren't after him. He starts teaching in such a way that they're not going to necessarily understand. This idea that these crowds are there is a symbol of, oh man, there must be something going on. Man, this is a spiritual group. Not necessarily. There were needy people for sure, but we don't see this. We see him even hiding it. Where we see Jesus make special revelation to his disciples and followers is usually in smaller settings. Usually as they're walking. And he's walking with his disciples and says, hey guys, come here a second. Consider these lilies. And starts to teach as he's with them in special, as he's sharing meals with them, that's when he starts to speak more with regards to revelation to him. He doesn't tend to reveal himself in that same way with regards to crowds. It's very interesting how that happens. And so for us, we know that much discipleship, that could, this, again, if we want to be disciple makers and if we want to be discipled, then we need to watch how these things happen. In the church, the primary vessel we've talked about for discipleship, the number one emphasis of the church needs to be the proclamation of the word. So on Sunday morning, huge emphasis on getting here, teaching the word and all those kind of things. But that's not the end of discipleship. And you could almost make an argument that less discipleship happens in that setting than does once you guys leave this place. Discipleship happens as you're having lunch with coworkers. Discipleship happens as you're at the gym with a friend or you're at the river fishing or whatever the case may be. That's where a lot of just brass tacks, nuts and bolts discipleship takes place. So I encourage you, don't think that you don't get to have an emphasis with regards to discipleship because you're not the one standing in front of a huge crowd of people to be able to speak. You have emphasis with regards to discipleship when you bring people into your home and share a meal with them. And you're intentional about capturing the time you have in those small settings for the purpose of discipleship. These crowds are no indication necessarily of spirituality or discipleship. And also, um, just as disciples are much more than spectators in a crowd, right? And coming to church on Sunday does not guarantee that we are a disciple. Would we all agree with that? This is the truth. Coming to church on Wednesday night, though it may be closer, does not guarantee you that you are in fact a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples are so much more than that. Case in point, look at this story. Verse five. Well, let's, we should read. Go to verse three. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could get, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, keyword plural, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So in verse five, this paralytic's brought in. You guys know the story. The roof starts to crack apart. This is when usually when we're teaching this, we start to talk about what would that have been like? You start feeling dirt on your head and all that kind of stuff. But we're being a little more intentional and I'm trying not to keep you late because I went really late on Sunday. So I'm gonna show grace. But, in this particular story, the they, those who had great faith that Jesus commends, it's, it's they, it's plural. It's not just the guy on the mat. It's the people that are bringing the man to Jesus. 
These are the disciples of this story. He looks at them and he says, man, these men have great faith. And look, the first time in the entire book of Mark when faith is brought into the picture, first mention of faith in the entire book, it's not just a belief. It's not just a a knowledge that they attained. It's not a feeling. It's a belief that produced real, tangible, some might even say frantic action purposeful, intentional, we got to make things happen kind of action. You know, we, we, we have gone, you know, pendulums tend to swing in Christianity. Pendulums tend to swing. So we'll go through periods where the church historically seemed to teach mostly a works-based salvation. You have to do this and this. And you look at the way the Catholic church handled things when they were in power um, over Christianity in general. It's very works-based salvation. And then things swing after the Reformation. It's like, no, it's not worth it's works. It's faith alone. But what has happened in a lot of places is the pendulum away from works has swung so far that you become afraid to talk about works because you don't want to be associated with that side. And so you go just faith alone. And there's a whole generation of people. There are tons of Christians that have been trained to believe that if you just believe that's all that's required. You just have this knowledge in your head that, yeah, I believe that he's God and that's it. But, but biblical, I mean, read the book of James, the entire book of James, biblical saving faith always produces action. A knowledge of who Jesus is requires that we have to do something about it. We've got to, to move on this. And, and here's the interesting thing. The people that he's commending, again, talking about crowds, the ones that the story commends that we should look to are these four men coming in, not the big crowd that had gathered together to take in a teaching. In this setting, the crowd hindered healing. And you see that in a couple of places in the scriptures, by the way. Blind Bartimaeus, for example. There's a huge crowd coming with Jesus and he's calling out, trying to get Jesus' attention in faith, knowing that Jesus can heal. And it says it's the crowd that got in his way and was telling him to shut up, leave him alone, leave him alone. But the disciples in this story, the followers of Jesus who had faith in him, the kind of faith Jesus commends, look at the situation they're in. All right, we can't get in. The doors are covered. The windows are covered. There's no chance that we get in here. We need a plan. And they would not take no for an answer. We have a friend in need and Jesus who's inside that building is sufficient for our friend's need. So how are we going to do this? I mean, just think of the scenario that they were in. That at some point they went, we need rope. <laughs> you know what I mean? Isn't that awesome? When's the last time you went to church and thought, we're going to need some rope? You know what I mean? I think that's awesome. They looked at the situation. And I mean, how many of us, especially those of us that have at one time or another gone to huge churches, I can remember at times when my faith wasn't maybe quite as strong as it is now. And and I walked up there and all it took was a crowd at the door to go, ah, never mind. Let's go to breakfast. (laughs) And these guys see the crowd at the door and they're like, where can we get some rope? And they go up on the roof and they full on vandalize Peter's house. Which, don't you wish you could see Peter's reaction? Because knowing what we know about Peter, that had to be entertaining. (laughs) Had to be entertaining. And that early on in his walk, who knows what a fisherman started saying. You know what I mean? That'll be fun to watch. I bet they don't depict that in the movie tomorrow night. But that'll be fun to talk about in heaven, right? And so they start breaking the roof apart. And they start lowering the guy into Jesus. This is incredible. Because disciples act. Write that down. Disciples act. Fast forward, if you will, skip ahead. Look at verse 13. When Jesus calls one of his disciples, Matthew, that's who Levi is here in the story. 
says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching him. So there's a huge crowd of people following him. And he passed by and he saw Levi, who is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. You guys remember Sam's teaching a couple of weeks ago that discipleship means a willingness to abandon everything for your faith in Jesus Christ. That discipleship often costs us something, but that we're clinging to Jesus. We're not clinging to things. And so here's Matthew in a very profitable job. And he's the worst of the worst in Jerusalem, considered a thief by other Jews. And here's Jesus walking along with a whole crowd of people following him. And when Jesus goes, this is really key. It ties in with verse 17. When Jesus decides, I'm going to pick a disciple who's going to come with me and I'm going to teach him to do what I do. He doesn't turn around to the crowd of people standing behind him. He looks at the worst of the worst and says, you come with me. And can I just say as a side note, when we look at how Jesus called disciples, If you notice, Jesus didn't tend to get up in front of the crowd and say, if anyone wants to follow, I'll have a sign-up sheet in the back. Just go fill that sheet out. I'll get in touch with you and we'll talk. He boldly went to people and said, you, you follow me. And I think in our culture, I know I can do this. Maybe I'm just talking for me. But there can be a tendency with our busy society and our our, uh, independence and I mean individualism and, and things like that to think, We have to be careful about how we approach people and all this. But when Jesus called people to follow him, it was like a gift and a privilege being offered someone who had no right to claim such a thing. And we should present Jesus like that every time. Sometimes we can think, oh man, if I say this, they're going to think, oh, this is going to be a hindrance to them. And instead we should come out and say, you have an incredible opportunity to become a disciple of the King of Kings. I mean, Jesus presents it like it's a gift, like it's a prize to be desired, not just like a, hey, think about this. But that's a side note. Moving on, so, so Jesus calls Matthew, says, follow me. So he's calling Matthew to be a disciple. Remember, we talked about how rabbis would call disciples last week. And when a rabbi said to a disciple, follow me, they knew what that meant. It meant, you're going to follow me. You're going to train under me. I'm going to teach you to do what I do. Says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew abandons everything. Leaves this incredibly prosperous, really um, uh, just wealth-laden job behind. Follows Jesus. And then what happens? Who is the very, next, the very next thing Jesus is sitting and eating and who does it just happen to be that's sitting around the table? Verse 15, and as he reclined in his house, many what? Come on, say it out loud. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Like he didn't go to seminary yet. Like he, he didn't get the dissertation on, so how does salvation work? Should I be a Calvinist or an Arminian? He, he didn't do the whole like, so, so how do all these things, I, I need to get my stuff in a row. And what if they ask me questions about like creation or about all this kind of stuff? He's like, I'm following him. And already he's turning to people and saying, you got to come, you got to come, you got to come. And just like that, Matthew ain't done nothing yet. And already he's got a whole table of people sitting around. That's what disciples do. Disciples act. Followers of Jesus see people who need Jesus and say, you got to come. Now, the people in the crowd, they're not really doing much of that. In fact, the scribes are in the crowd, and what are they doing? They're sitting around nitpicking. 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're in the crowd that Jesus bypassed on his call to discipleship. And rather than acting, bringing people to the Messiah, they're just sitting back and critiquing and complaining and picking apart and criticizing. But the disciples acting. Doesn't know as much as the scribes yet. Doesn't know the Bible like the scribes do. Doesn't know the scriptures like the scribes do. But he knows who Jesus is. And he knows that because he knows who Jesus is, he has to tell somebody else. And so disciples act. That's what we see in the first story. Crowd of people around listening. The disciples are acting. They're following. They got ropes, which I think is just awesome. So first of all is forget the crowd. Disciples are those who act. Secondly, having knowledge is not the same thing as being a disciple. Being a part of an enthusiastic crowd of people listening to the teaching of the word does not mean you're a disciple. And in the same sense, having knowledge does not mean you're a disciple. Look at verse five. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, so Jesus comes, they bring, go back to the picture, dirt everywhere. People are shaking their hair out. Guy on the mats laying there in front of Jesus and Jesus looks on him. And he walks up to the guy and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the Jews at that time had no real expectation based on anything that we can find anywhere. The Jewish people had no real expectation at that time that the Messiah that they were to be waiting for would come with the power to forgive sins. They didn't know that. Now, there were a lot of writings that talked about who Messiah might be, and they had tons of expectations. There's a, a Jewish writing, rabbinical writings called the Psalms of Solomon, and in them they show tons of the expectations, really detailed what the Jewish people expected, when, or still expect, I should say, when Messiah comes. And so there's things like his ability to overcome demons. There's things like his ability to heal. There's a lot about the Messiah coming and setting up the perfect government and all those things. But no Nowhere in there is any claim to the Messiah coming with the authority to forgive sin. The Jewish people, and rightfully so in their interpretation here, believe based on the Old Testament that the only one who can forgive sin is God. Remember the story of Joseph, Potiphar's wife? She's trying to seduce Joseph and he says, how can I do this and sin against who? God. To the Jewish person and to the Christian who understands the Bible, the ultimate person who is offended by our sin is not a human. It's always God. And so even though Joseph might sin against Potiphar and his wife by sleeping with Potiphar's wife, he even recognizes the ultimate, uh, the, the ultimate wound, if I can use that phrase, not that we could ever literally hurt God, but the ultimate wounded party in any sin, the offended party in any sin, better word, is always God. Go to David. Remember David and Bathsheba, another sexual sin issue? When he gets confronted by his sin, he says, I have sinned against God and God alone. This is very clear in Christian writings, in the Old Testament, in Jewish beliefs, and they believe only God can forgive sin. So when they're standing right there in front of Jesus, and the guy's laying there on the ground, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, that's a massive, massive, massive statement that couldn't possibly be missed by anyone in that room. There would have been, without question, a gasp that would have been heard throughout that room when he says that. He's making a big time statement when he says that. And he knows it. 
He refers to himself a little later on in verse 10. He says, um, so that you may know that the son of man, this is a very big claim to deity. And he says that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus knows what he's saying here. Now, some would say, well, what Jesus is doing is he's saying this on purpose because he's going to heal the guy, but he's trying to invoke a response out of these guys first. So, so he's forgetting the fact that he's lame and he's going to talk about forgiving sins so that these guys get all fired up and then he can address that. Um, I don't think that's the case. It's not really a part worth arguing a ton, but you don't see Jesus manipulating people in need for his own need or for his own purposes in that way. You see Jesus ministering to that person, not trying to use that need for the growth of his ministry, if that makes sense. So I, I don't believe that that's what Jesus is doing. What I really believe is just going on here that's worthy of note is that there's a guy in need. And in his need, in his physical frailty, he's come to an understanding that the person in whom he, the only person that he has hope and help in is Jesus Christ. And in and through that physical need, Jesus is ministering to his greater need. And we see this all the time still today, don't we? I've heard people say before, it was a line, I can't remember who said it. I think it was a comedian, probably not a good one. But he said something like, no one ever comes to Jesus on prom night. They wait till things are so messed up and so messed up, just like till everything's falling apart. And then they go, I'll come to Jesus. And that's where you hear people say things like Christianity's a crutch. You guys have heard that before. If anyone ever says that to you, agree with them. <laughs> yes, because my legs are broken. Christianity is absolutely a crutch to prop up and help heal those in need. And this is why, for those of us, again, if you want to be a disciple maker, a disciple follower of Jesus Christ, when someone around you is in need, when tragedy comes, when nightmares come, when those earth shattering, those phone calls that no one wants, when those moments happen, death, illness, unemployment, financial devastation, that kind of stuff comes, man, it is prime time, game on, drop everything and be there for them. Because what God often does is brings people to a place of just neediness in general so that they can understand that these needs pale in comparison to the real needs that Jesus is there to minister to. And so there are a ton of, is there anyone in here that you could say, my testimony is I was on rock bottom. I was in bad shape when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Is there anyone else in this room that would say that? There's a lot of people in this. And so disciples of Jesus Christ recognize issues with need, whether that be so-and-so's in the hospital, so -and -so, whatever the case may be, and you drop everything and you say, man, this is an opportunity to manifest the person of Jesus Christ and be there for them in their need. And time after time after time again, it is through that need that Jesus ministers to their greatest need, which is forgiveness of sin. And we have the privilege of coming alongside people in difficult positions that are hurting not having answers necessarily, but being able to say, man, I, I, you are suffering. I know you're suffering, but I know the one who suffered for you, who can relate to your suffering and who is putting everything back together again to end all of our suffering forget forever. And he'll get you through this, but you got to put your faith in him. Even when you don't understand what's going on right now, you put your faith in him and he can forgive your sin and he can fix your broken leg, and he will fix all of this stuff eventually. 
And times of need are prime time. That is game on for the disciple. Tracking with me on that? Amen if you are. Yeah. So this is what we do. So when people are in need, we do whatever we can to get that person to Jesus. You tear roofs apart. You shove people out of the way of the door if they're standing in the way. (laughs) What is it? The kingdom of God, the violent, take it by force. You just do what you got to do. I'm not advocating violence. I'm just saying you just do what you got to do. All right. We'll sort the rest out later. Um, But here's the thing that's amazing in this story that we need to understand. This scenario going on, though I do, I totally believe in that moment, Jesus is just ministering to that need. But the scenario itself reveals that there's more than one needy person in that room, even if they don't all know it. So as you read on, it says in verse eight, as these people, they're thinking in their own hearts, they're questioning in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, it's like the moment he knows they're thinking it, he's shutting the door on that. Stop, hey, he turns to him immediately. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? Excuse me. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Understatement of the decade. I think we would all say much that I ain't never seen nothing like this. Now, there's a phrase in verse 10 where he says, so that you may know. That's a really common phrase in the scriptures. It's a phrase that Jesus uses. Um, you, you think of the story of Lazarus when he prays, standing before the tomb. God, so that they might believe in you, that they might know who you are. And he calls Lazarus, come forth. Um, It's in other passages. The book of John, for example, ends with the understanding. He says, these things are written that you might believe. It's a phrase that we see come up all the time. What's interestingly, or what's interesting and unique about this particular time when Jesus says, so that you may know, as opposed to other times that it's written in the scriptures, is that he's saying this to the most knowledgeable people in the land. He's speaking to the scribes, the ones that are paid to know, the ones that have devoted their life to knowing, the ones that studied everything. And he's saying, you need to know. This guy's in need. He needs help. I'm ministering to his greater need, but I'm also going to minister to his other need because you have a need. And you don't even know that you have a need. It gets confusing, but it's there. You are in need and you don't even know. And for an itinerant rabbi with no credentials, with none of that background that any of them, for him to stand before the scribes and say, you don't even know. That's like a a huge offense to them in a lot of ways. But the issue is this. This man had a spiritual need, obviously, that Jesus is ministering to. Now he has a, a, a practical need, but there's these other men in the room that have the exact same need that he does. Maybe it not be with their legs, but they have a spiritual need that they're not even aware of. And the reason that this is really important for us to understand, he's speaking to the most knowledgeable people there. And he's saying, you have a need and you're not even aware of it. And the reason is excellence, write this down, excellence hides need. Excellence often hides and disguises need. 
Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger right there and turn just to the right just a little bit and look at the book of Luke, would you? But we're coming back, so keep your finger in there. Just to the right in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, Luke is writing here to this man named Theophilus. And he says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Say the name with me. Most excellent Theophilus. Now here, look at verse 4. There's an interesting contradiction here. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he writes to a guy named Theophilus, most excellent. It's a, a, a title that is esteeming this man. You are most excellent Theophilus. Theoph, Theoph, Steve. No, <laughs> he, he says to him, I'm writing to you so that you may have certainty. The word there is osvalion. It means so that you might know with like the kind of conviction that you would die for, that this would become a truth. I, I heard John Piper teach on this when we were at a conference in Chicago or maybe it was one in Florida. I can't remember one time. And, and he said, you know this as a cloud. I want you to know this as a mountain, as a tangible, firm, immovable force in front of you that you, you know this. I want you to know this. You see the difference? That's the word he uses. I want you to, verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. You know this, but you don't know this. And so he writes to most excellent Theophilus. Now he uses that title two more times as he's writing. Most of you guys know this. The book of Luke is connected, is considered really to be part one of a two-part volume. Part two is what? Acts, the book of Acts. Also written by Luke, also written to most excellent Theophilus. And two times in the book of Acts, the title most excellent is used. And in both cases, when considered with what we're looking at today and with this, story, with this intro written to Theophilus, there's something interesting that happens there. In the first one, for example, he says, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 24, Paul is on trial before most excellent Felix. He stands on trial before most excellent Felix and he preaches the gospel. That Felix has need of the gospel, that he's broken like all of humanity and he needs salvation and that salvation can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Most excellent Felix, you gotta know this. And how does most excellent Felix? Highly intellectual man, highly trained, huge position of esteem, an excellent, like cream of the crop type guy. And his response is, as he says, Paul, get out of here. Literally, he says, go away. And he sends righteous Paul off to jail. I'll call for you when I'm ready for you. Just go away. This highly trained man is presented with, you need Jesus. Get out of here. Two chapters later, Acts 26 comes along. There's another most excellent. Then he says in the next one, most excellent Festus, which in my mind, I've been saying Festivus all day long. And some of you get that and I'm proud of you, but it's, it's Festus, most excellent Festus, he says. And so Paul's there on trial again. 
And Paul's been preaching the gospel to everyone that will listen. You have need. And remember, this is a broken, beaten, he's got lash marks and scars. Luke was his physician, remember? So Luke has seen the marks on the back of Paul, the beatings that Paul has endured. He's seen all of it up close. And here's Paul, in their minds, a nobody, a slave, a prisoner, saying to all of them, you have a need. You're broken. You're fallen. You need to be saved to the most powerful men on earth. And what's the reaction? Well, most excellent Festus says, Paul, your great teaching is driving you mad. You are out of your mind. That's what he says to him. And Paul's response, he says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking the truth. He says, look, you've got to know this. You have need. But these men are the most educated, the most powerful, the most influential, the most wealthy, and all of their most excellence has completely disguised a massive, gaping need that every single one of them desperately has. And so disciples, let me say this to you. There is a danger in being most excellent. There is a danger in being the one who knows the scriptures better than anyone else in the room. And the danger is, is that you become someone, we talked a little bit about this last week. You rely on your excellence. You rely on your knowledge. You rely on your talent. You go, well, but that's not the same as Bible knowledge. I assure you, the scribes had excellent Bible knowledge and they didn't know Jesus. They totally missed him. There is a danger in being most excellent. And this is where it all ties back in. Turn back to Mark chapter one, verse 17. When all of those guys, the ones in the crowd, the most excellent educated men in the room are watching as these heathen tax collectors and sinners who don't know nothing about nothing and shouldn't even be allowed to breathe in our nation. They're so wicked. They're watching and they're picking apart and they're criticizing. Why are you eating with them? How dare you eat with them? Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. You see, you've heard this verse, but think about that context right now. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, it's the same day that the guys lowered down from the roof. Those who are well don't need a physician. Those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Oh, most excellent heritage. Here's two things. Like the, the scribes knew a lot about a lot. Festus, Felix, they knew a lot about a lot. But there's two things that are really important that a disciple of Jesus Christ knows. And I don't mean knows like a cloud. I don't mean knows like a theory. I mean osvalion. You know it like a mountain standing in front of you. There is no doubt about it. Number one, you know you have need. He says, I came for those who need And so you can't become a follower of Jesus if you don't think you have need of Jesus. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to understand you need Jesus. And it's not theoretical. You need him 
You know this like you know anything else in this world. You know this like you know Mount McLaughlin stands there right this moment. You need Jesus. And the second thing you know is, so does everyone else. It's really just that simple. Look, there is a type of knowledge that can know everything about Scripture and leave the righteous man in jail to rot. There is the type of righteousness that can know everything about the Scriptures and leave your friends lost and outside the dinner table where they need to be. There's a type of knowledge that can know everything about everything and not bring, do whatever is necessary to bring your crippled in need friend to Jesus. It's a need that looks at Christianity as entertaining, as education. We'll just take this in. We'll just, we'll just watch this. And I'm fancy myself a disciple because I'm here amongst the enthusiastic crowd. And I want to encourage you something. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you know you need Jesus. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you know that Jesus is the only hope that your friend has. And as a disciple in Jesus, you are compelled to act. Say, I, I got to get him in. I'll bust up the roof. I'll do whatever it takes. If I have to give this up to get to my friend, I'll do it. If I have to spend money to take him to dinner, I'll gladly do it. If I have to give of my own time, my own energy, my own talent, my own whatever the case may be, I'll bust open the roof of Pastor Jeff's house if I have to. But we've got to get, that sounds bad, I can't heal him, but you know what I mean. You'll do whatever it takes to get your hurting, needy friend to Jesus. Most excellent heritage. That's what disciples do. Amen? You guys stand and let's pray. Bow your heads with me if you would and close your eyes and just think. You know anybody in need? Who, who do you know that needs Jesus? Who do you know that might, maybe they're in a broken situation. Maybe they're in a desperate situation, a hopeless situation. Or maybe they're one who's just plain old most excellent. And life just seems to be going swimmingly. Who do you know that needs Jesus? Will you take just a second in your own heart and pray for them? You know, it's significant. Just start praying in your mind. You just pray in your spirit right now to Jesus for them. But, but know this, that it's interesting that here's these men who in faith do whatever it takes to present their needy friend before Jesus. And he says, he honors their request, doesn't he? He ministers to the man who was brought by those of faith. And so just take a moment right now to pray for your needy friend, to put him before the Savior who can satisfy all of their needs.